0: Sport has the power to change the world. Welcome to Telling Our Football Stories. My name is Boise Kumalo, and my guest today is Andy Wagstaff. In today's episode, Andy talks about growing up in England, looking up to Maradona, and coaching for Liverpool. Andy, welcome to Telling Our Football Stories. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, bud? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, what's your take on what's happening with the Super League?
1: Oh, uh, well, I think it's, it's possibly come and gone, right? But we, we, we know that that's probably not the end of that story. Um, really, a uh, couple of good friends of mine were, were discussing it last night, and we were just blown away at how it got to this point without the managers and the fans and the media getting some sort of, uh, I don't know, um, upfront information or notification that this is where, you know, these leaders and owners were were moving in in that direction. Um, so I was shocked at how it was handled. Now the, the owners, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, there's, there are people resigning, there are people quitting their jobs, owners apologising on on you know national TV and coming back with their tails between their legs because of the reaction of the fans and the managers and the players. And what my point is, I just can't believe it got to this stage without that becoming something that the the owners would have thought about ahead of time. So do I do I think UEFA and FIFA are the um other villains no i don't um you know i think there's lots of of uh, money being made in in those departments but the way to have done this would have been more of getting the managers and the players and the owners together to go to approach UEFA or fifa with anything that they wanted to see change in the game in my opinion as opposed to just uh you know we don't like the way that this is going so we're just going to create our own super league and We're going to worry about ourselves and nobody else and let's just you know let's just continue on so uh, disappointing that it went the way it did um also inspiring the way that the the fans and the managers and the owners or sorry um players rallied around each other and said no this is our game and and this is something that we love and please don't change it you know why are you changing it like we all love what we've got so
0: so do you think the game is in a good stage right now, or we should make some changes?
1: I think there's I think that the, there's there's a bit of a crossroads in, in, in the game at the minute. I think you, you might, I'm not sure what your opinion on some of the changes within the game, like VAR and stuff like that, have had, and you know, the issues that we've that we've seen over the last few years with, with racism and um just uh, the, the amount of money that's been brought into the game now where you can just literally buy a team and be the best. And it's just, there's got to be more regulation. There's got to be more control. Um, it doesn't seem like there's real control from the top down, which makes it feel a little bit like the wild, wild West right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there has to be changes that, you know, who, who makes these changes? I, I don't know because who who's leading it? You know, is it the governing bodies leading it? You know, are the the fans leading it? Are the the players leading it? Are the managers leading it? Are the owners leading it? I mean, it needs it needs representation from all of those levels to come together to try to solve the problems that we've got within the game right now. Um, but everything is driven by money, I'm afraid, right? And that's why that's why it's gone the way it's gone right now, where it's just, it feels like the wild, wild west. And the actual game itself, which we sometimes get away from because of all the politics surrounding it, um, you know, with with VAR, I mean, it just seems to have created more chaos. Um, as, much as, as much as I thought it was probably a good idea and I couldn't understand why there was a lot of people at, in the, at the top levels of the game that were opposed to it, um, now I understand it there is so, even with video, it's so hard sometimes to determine the, the correct result. Yes. It makes you appreciate what referees have been dealing with for the last however many years, uh, because they have to make a decision in the moment, it, you know, they've been getting it as close to right as you could imagine, because video can't even get it right. So, you know, it's uh, so yeah, so, so to answer your question, I, I, I do think now is the time to begin change at every level. You know, within the game.
0: Yeah, you touched on it a little bit about the uh, relegation. Do you think uh, in the US teams or MLS should have a relegation system?
1: Again, it's it's a it's a it's a comment that is not backed by an awful lot of research. Um, my answer is not is not been driven by hours and days of of research in this because I'm not really in the trenches and not really a decision maker in this process. But here are the, you know, from a purist perspective, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to have an, a relegation promotion, you know, all of the things that come with, you know, how the structure works in Europe and, and around South America and other parts of the world. However, it takes a lot for, for a, uh, an investor to bring money to the table and astronomical amounts of money to buy a franchise here in America to start from scratch and put them in the MLS because they've been, you know, uh, you know, voted into the league, and then have the risk of of, of being relegated and losing that money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we have to get an open mind about this, and we have to understand that the way that soccer in the US is is starting. You know, I say starting, it's, it's been going a long time, obviously, but this professional structure is really in the infant stages. And it's going to take many, many years to evolve. And without these owners that are willing to come in with, you know, millions and millions of dollars of investment, we wouldn't have these teams. So it's, it's a bit of a catch 22, I would say from a purist perspective, in, in one day, would I like to see promotion relegation? Yeah, of course. But do I understand why that can't happen right now? I do. And um, if it's, let's call it 10 million to buy a USL League 1 franchise and it's 50 million to buy an MLS franchise then if you get a USL League 1 franchise and you happen to put a good squad together and you go through the ranks and you're in the MLS and a team from the MLS drops down and now is in League 1 then that doesn't sound about right you know so there's got to be there's got to be ways around that um, but again a lot of it is driven by finances and i think a lot of it's going to be driven by time it's going to take many 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 years to really think through this process and make sure it works for the us system uh, just because it works in england which i don't even add question whether it does when you look at some of the you know you look at some of the lower league clubs i mean i was fortunate enough to have been a a, a schoolboy at huddersfield town and then i was an apprentice so i was a two year apprentice at Berry Football Club, well, they, they, they went into administration and they're not even around, you know, they were just folded, um, a couple of years back. So, you know, it's a, it's a very complex structure, you know, and, um, I don't think there's a, there's a, there's a perfect answer yet.
0: Yeah. So wh- where are you from in England since you kind of touched on it a little bit there?
1: Um, so Boise, I'm from, I'm from a town called Wigan.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and, so, you know, if you're a fan of the the Premier League or or the the FA Cup or anything like that, there was going back about ten years ago. It was a bit of a fairy tale run from Wigan. They they made it through the lower divisions with your promotion and your relegation, and they went to the top and they got into the Premier League and and they had a fantastic few seasons. Um, and they actually won the FA Cup. They beat um. I think Man City. Uh, oh goodness, I can't remember now. But they they won the FA Cup uh, about 10, 11 years ago, and it was um, it was great for the city. And it's a small working class city. And so the, yeah, so I grew up in the outskirts of Wigan, um, and that is geographically right between sort of Liverpool and Manchester, like twenty five miles di- distance between the two cities, and 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 Wigan is right in the middle of that distance. Yeah. So at, at what age did you start playing the beautiful game? I think I well I started playing with with a bunch of mates of mine just at the local, you know, school fields. Um and they were always older than me. In fact, quite a few of them are out in California now running um uh, Carlsbad running a Carlsbad soccer club out there and right. um, I feel like they I feel like they just recently partnered with LA Galaxy but those there's a, a few a few of the lads that were just a little bit older than me and we used to get together at the park uh, or the local school fields and I was probably about five or six and um, they were about eight eight or nine and, and that was probably my quick sort of way of, of falling in love with the game. I didn't really play any organized football really outside of school football which was not very organized um, but I started playing with like local what you would call travel teams like we do over here at around. Sort of nine and ten, um, and then I played with a, a really good youth club called Captain's Lane, who were always sort of the Leicester City. You know what I mean? Like always third through sixth in the league, and yeah. always had a good cup run. A good team, and then I got recruited by a team called Culture of Terriers at about twelve. And that's when it started getting a bit serious. All of a sudden, my performances, I was more anxious about the way I was playing. And you know what I mean? It's sort of, that was where, because that they were the top top level and we were getting scouts coming watching us from Manchester City and different clubs, That that's where it started to get a probably a little bit more like it was real and a bit more anxious. So I think prior to that age, I loved it. You know what I mean? It was just, you just played, you just was a kid playing, playing the sport you love. Right.
0: So being from Wigan I assume you're a,
1: a Wigan fan. You know it's funny because I've, I'm always going to support my hometown, right? And it's hard you know most football fans want you to just say you 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 be holding to one club and that's it, right? You can't say well I like that club as well. But I've I've been a Liverpool fan through the years because really in the northwest of England um Exactly where I live, you either supported Liverpool or Everton because they were both in Merseyside, or you supported Manchester United or Manchester City because they were both in Greater Manchester. So, and we were like right on the right on the border of both uh, counties. So, yeah, Liverpool was my team, but then obviously over the years, as as Wigan, you know, they 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 were in one of the lower lower divisions for a long time, and then they kind of rose to the top, and then it was like, oh wow, you know, I'm really. Really proud of what Wigan have done. So, obviously, from then, I wanted them to win games and, and do well. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I am actually a Wigan fan. No, I w- I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. Okay.
0: So, growing up as a young player, who are some of the players that you looked up to?
1: You know, I think back to the one of the Liverpool teams that had uh, Peter Beardsley, John Barnes, Ray Houghton, uh, Steve McMahon, um, just really, really good players fantastic teams at, at, at Liverpool and then you know I remember the Everton team in the mid-80s like mid to late 80s that won the league uh, with with Kevin Sheedy and uh, Ratcliffe um, Gary Lineker um, and they were just brilliant to watch and then the, so the Liverpool Everton derbies in the like late 80s were just something special and then I came over I came over here in, in 1991 And, you know, you can imagine that the the, the television coverage in the U.S. for for soccer back home was not really there. So I lost touch with it a little bit. You know, I know that a lot of friends will talk about the Eric Cantona era with Manchester United. And everyone talks about the 96 euros with fondness. And I I was here and I I missed a lot of that. So I feel like I've skipped a decade in the 90s where I didn't really get to to see that the world game as much as I would like, but I, but yeah, I would say probably the, the most influential footballing moment for me in my life was the 86 world cup. Um, and as much as uh, Diego Maradona uh, knocked England out with the, the <laughs> two, two moments of, of insane, um, insane, uh, you know, uh, memories um, with the hand of God. And then obviously the, one of the best goals you could ever imagine seeing in your life. Um he, he impacted me um from seeing the game played with so much freedom and joy and passion. And for me he he was he was my idol. And as much as he went off the rails a little bit with with some of his off-the-field activities, I genuinely feel for you know, God rest his soul now, but I genuinely feel for him. Because he was a young boy with a genius talent that wasn't protected, yeah. so you know, um, yeah. I mean, I, I even in 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 my um, in my desire to want to be like Diego, I, I he used to wear a ring on his little pinky finger, <laughs> and sure enough, I asked my mom and dad, "Can I get a pinky ring?" And I had a pinky ring for a few years. Um, I remember in in England, I, I remember this. I had a a bed. That had like a wooden, it was kind of like a bunk bed, it had a wooden um side to the bed to prevent you falling out. And he had the whole Argentina national team stickers, you know, the Panini stickers. Yes, sir. and I remember my dad saying to me, Why have you got the Argentina team? And I because you know, we were England, right? And right he goes, he goes, They just knocked us out of the World Cup. And he's like, You've got to we want Germany to win it now. And I said, No way. I said, I I you know, I know they knocked us out and I know that it was he shouldn't have done what he did, but I'll never stop appreciating what he did on the field. He was he was an absolute genius.
0: So, what type of player were you? Did you, did you play like Maradona or?
1: <laughs> oh, that's it. That would be an unbelievable soundbite, wouldn't it? That one? <laughs> oh, yeah, I could see that one going out with all the boys um talking about me saying I'm like Maradona. No, I am. Um, you know, it's funny. I I, I played I, when I started out up in, from between like sort of nine and fourteen. I was a little. A striker, like a little uh, center forward back then, everyone played a 4 4 2, right? And it was always big guy, little guy up front. Obviously, you know, I was a little guy, so I would just run off the big guy and I'd get in on goal and I'd score quite a lot of goals. So, I, I really would honestly, genuinely say at all the levels I played at up until about 14, I used to just bag a lot of goals. And then I went to Huddersfield Town which was about an hour and a half from my house. And they offered me a schoolboy contract, which means that basically they they own your rights until the age of 16. So I went to Huddersfield, signed for them, did pretty well. And they started to play me a little bit more on the wing and a little bit as a, as a number 10 off the nine again. Um, then at 16, I decided to leave Huddersfield because we was a little bit far away from home. And I signed for Berry Football Club. I could have gone to Preston. I could have gone to Tranmere, but I, I signed for, for Berry, And um, they... They actually started to convert me more into a central midfield player. So mm-hmm. I, I suppose really I was when the game was a four-four-two with a big man, little man. I was definitely the, the, the little man off the, off the nine. Mm-hmm. And then as the game evolved into more of a four-three-three, four-two-three-one, I became more of like a hybrid eight slash ten. And that's where my career sort of went, you know, through the you know through the professional ranks a little bit over here.
0: So did you have any dreams of playing professional soccer in
1: England? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was 100% my ambition. Um, and it's funny. I think that when, when I got to the level that I was at, which was playing as a, you know, in England, what they, what they do is, you know, you, you obviously sign as a schoolboy at 14 well you used to, and then at 16, you would leave school, you know, you, you graduate from school at 16 and you either get a job or you get an apprenticeship doing something. And Back in the back in the eighties, Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister in England, and she came up with a scheme called the YTS, which was the Youth Training Scheme. And basically, what that was was that she would give support to businesses to hire um, high school graduates um, straight out of school, so at sixteen. So you could get an apprenticeship as a as a as a plumber, or you could get an ele- electrical engineering apprenticeship. In my case. I was offered a, a an apprenticeship to play to play football, and obviously you can't just apply for that and then you get it because you're you know you're a nice guy. You've got to get to a level where the club feels like you're valuable. so essentially what the, what I did is I signed a two- year contract with Barry at sixteen, and then it was just every day was I lived in what they call digs i lived I lived in a in a host house with a family that had like seven kids, um, older and they'd moved out, but they had a huge house, like the Adams family. It was like four stories high. And, um, I used to live in the attic and I would just, I was only 16. I would get up every day, get the bus down to the gig lane, which was the the ground where Berry football club was. Right. get, Get in and hang out with the team and we'd get changed and go down and train. Then we'd come back and we'd do jobs around the club. Like we'd clean the, clean the bathrooms we would clean you know we would go out and pick up trash from the stadium from the game from the weekend and you had to serve your time to try to work through the the the, the levels not only technically tactically but mentally you know they push you to the limits yeah. so my my dream was to make it from sort of the the youth team to the reserves to the first team and I, it just didn't happen I, I mentally at the time, struggled with being away from home, I struggled with the levels getting better, whether I was just not quite good enough to to match that level, or whether um, physically with being a little bit smaller, you know, it kind of hindered me at that, at that level. Yeah. Um, but that level back then was more very direct, you know, the football in England in the lower leagues was very powerful, just pump the ball long, getting behind, out, out fight people, and not my skill set you know so so yeah so at 18 i got let go i got released and then i had to come up with a different um a different plan
0: i guess the plan was to move to america and how did you end up to america
1: yeah you know it really wasn't necessarily um a plan uh, uh immediately it was i so at 18 i got told by by berry that they weren't gonna give me a pro contract so I went to Wigan. I was at Wigan for six months. And then I went to Everton for, for about a month um, and was doing pretty well there. But then um, Colin Harvey was the manager. He got, he got let go. Actually, they moved him to the assistant manager. They brought Howard Wilkinson back from Spain. And, and in that transition, I just didn't get, you know, they just got like, who's this guy? You know, so I just sort of got let go. And um, I went for a trial um, in Blackpool Uh, which is in the north of uh, northwest of england and it was there was about 50 to 60 players that all had played with a pro club in england at a good level but also had specific qualifications from high school so um in other words what we used to do back then were called gcses which were the qualifications okay i had enough gcses so you'd get like for example you'd take uh, a maths class or an english class or a science class you would get a a b c or d or an e in your gcse so you needed at least five gcse's i was okay I had about nine gcse's so i got invited to this trial and there was some good players there and i got offered um two scholarships at the end of that weekend i got offered a full ride at central connecticut state university who were division one at the time and then i got offered a very very good uh, scholarship offer not a full ride but close uh with oakland university Uh, by Gary Parsons so Gary Parsons who's now the the GM for the for the Flint City Bucks who I I'm also working for Gary came to England watched me play I met with him he offered me the scholarship and then my mum and dad really liked Gary a lot and I did too but I was only young but my mum and dad said you know I just feel like he's a really honest straight shooter of a a fella and we feel like we would trust sending you to him um and it's not that we didn't trust sending me to central Connecticut state. It was just the, the timing of the Central Connecticut state offer was a little bit wishy washy. It was like, we'll call you Wednesday. And they didn't call me Wednesday. You know, whereas Gary very diligent. So anyway, I I accepted the offer to go to America and went to play for Oakland university. who were top of division two at the time and played four years and, um, you know, got to a national final, got to a national semifinal, got to a national quarterfinal and, um, made all region and um, had a really wonderful time at Oakland.
0: Yeah. How was the transition from uh, England to, to the U.S.? Because I know earlier you said you kind of struggle with being away from home.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I moved away from home at 16. So that, you know, if you think about that now, it's young, isn't it? You know, it's, it's young for, a, I, I, you know, I see a lot of 16-year-olds in our, in our club. And I think, wow, you know, imagine being, living away from home, just, just trying to uh, make your way in the game. Um, and then 18 would have been probably okay in England, where you know it's my it's my culture. It's, it, you know, understand the language. Well, obviously, not like we've got a different language here, but just the uh, just the way you communicate is different. The way you you know live your life is a lot different between England and America, believe it or not. But um, yeah, so it took some it took some adjusting, um, but you know I I embraced it and and I. I fought through the the challenges and there were moments where I was homesick and wanted to go home. And, but I, you know, my mom and dad, you know, uh, have brought me up to be, um, as much of a fighter as I can be. And I, and I felt like I would be a failure if I, if I quit. And, um, I was close a couple of times and just because of uh, the desire to want to be around my family. And, um, but I pushed through and, you know, finished my four years and got my degree and, um, it took some time to get used to america but i i realized how wonderful this country is um to live in um you know obviously there's a lot of other things to talk about but um, i really settled down and enjoyed my time here
0: yeah do you think you made a good decision
1: <laughs> It's, you know i i don't ever I, I don't ever have the mentality of looking back with any regret um i'd say that um my only my only wish was that I was able to accomplish what I've you know hopefully accomplished here. I'd have loved to have accomplished that with my family, you know, and um, and not being on my own in a in a foreign country, um, you know. But but again, you know, over the years I've I, I've flown home, you know, several times a year to be with my my mum and dad and, and my brother um, and his family. And but I just I think as you get older, you you look back and go. When I was younger, I didn't realize the little things in life are the things that count more than anything. And I've missed, you know, I I do have regrets that I have missed, you know, my niece, um, you know, graduating from high school or my niece's birthday parties or Mother's Day for my mom. And, you know what I mean? Like, them are the things that I think that we take for granted, and, you know, I, I think I feel like I missed out on those opportunities. But again, I've, I've I've found a way to stay as close and as connected with my family as I could.
0: While you were at Oakland, did your parents come and watch the games?
1: Yeah, they did. Um, you know, my brother wasn't able to get over here that much. He came over a few years ago for my wedding. and But, you know, with, with him having a, a a family, a young family, it was, was tough for him to travel. Um, but yeah, my, um, my mom and dad would come over at least once a year. And would spend a couple of weeks, maybe even a month with me. And they got to see me playing for for Oakland. They got to see me playing for um actually I don't think they got to see me playing for the Neon or the Rockers, but they got uh they got to see me coaching for you know Oakland University as an assistant and then Saginaw Valley as the head coach, and they got they got to see those moments, which was good.
0: Yeah. How was it playing under Gary Parson?
1: Um, it was good. I mean, I, I learned a lot from Gary, and I think you'll find if you start to research a little bit um, the, the, the the amount of people that have played under Gary and have gone on to be successful in one realm or another, a lot of them have stayed in the game, which goes to show you that he continued to keep our passion alive. Yeah. Um, and a lot of us have gone on to do pretty well coaching-wise. You know, um, Gary was very good at organising, structuring, um making sure that game management was was perfect and um, he was a pragmatic coach like he would make he would make the team play in a style that made sense for that team so if we were a really good footballing team he would be able to find a way for us to play good football if we were a team that had specific strengths that were more geared towards power and pace and athleticism and direct mentality he would play that way and um so we, I appreciate his tactical insight into the game, and his and his way to deliver the information was very, very good. Um, and he's got a great eye for talent, obviously. <laughs> uh, no, he's got he's got a really good eye for, for talent. I mean, I, I, he, he knows how to recruit players. Yeah,
0: I know he's still recruiting for for Flint City Bucks. I, I, yes. I've seen him a couple of games.
1: Yeah, he's you know he's still getting out there and. Um, you know, when he's not golfing, he's out there uh, watching watching games, and uh, he's uh, he's still passionate about the game and loves talking the game. I, I even say to him, "I'm like, you know, if you're you know, do you want to do a bit of coaching." He's like, "No, just like I like my my stage in the game now, which is, you know, recruiting players and um, that relationship and and seeing players go on and, and achieve their dreams in many regards, whether that dream is a pro player or you become a, a mechanical engineer. That's he likes. He's all about people." So it's, it's been good from that regard.
0: How did you get into coaching?
1: You know, I was at Berry, and part of my time at Berry, we had to give back to the community. So I was only 16 and I was given uh, the task of going to coach a local high school team. So that the kids were a couple of years younger than me. And um, I just started doing a bit of, bit of coaching. I thought, you know, I quite like helping people out, you know, helping these kids out. And then I, um, I came to America, actually what I did before I came to America, I got my one of my licenses back then. I think they call it the prelim in England. I, I passed that course. And I remember one of, the, one of the guys who assessed us, his name was Paul Powers. He used to play for, um, for Manchester City. He was a really good defender. And he, he, he was my assessor. And he said, you know, you, you, you've got a good way of, of coaching and communicating. I was only 17, 18 at the time. So I came over to America and I was, I was playing at Oakland and my roommate at the time, uh, Jim Harrison was a, an engineer going and got studying to become an engineer. And he was a very good player for Oakland as well. And he had been doing some training sessions for Bloomfield force just down the street from Oakland university. And there was three teams that they had, and he'd been doing some training with these teams. Anyway, he got really busy and he came to me and he said, Hey, have you got any interest in jumping in and, and covering for me? Because I, I'm just so busy with my mechanical engineering. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go and do it. So I, I can't even remember how I got there. I think I borrowed his car or something and went to this training session and put on a session for this, you know, 13-year-old boys team. This was back in probably 92, <laughs> 93. I mean, these guys are, you know, <laughs> middle-aged men now. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and, um, and I did the session. And then after the session, th- th- there was three gentlemen, um, Rob Sisk, um, Rick Pinkos and Bill Nixon were were parents but also they had, they were running the Bloomfield force and they came to me after after the session said hey we'd love you to come back again you did a great job with the kids they really enjoyed you and I'm like okay so it kind of went from there um, and that's you know ultimately where I ended up getting the director coaching position a few years later I, you know was Bloomfield. So. Ah,
0: interesting so what yeah. qualifications do you have?
1: So I got my prelim way way back when, and then I went on the USSF courses over here. Um, went through the ranks, got my A license. So I got my B. Li- I actually passed through the C into the B because I had uh, enough pro enough pro years of playing. So they 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 evaluated my playing career and they they moved me directly to the B license. So I got my B license in Tampa or Bradenton. Yeah, IMG, IMG, and I got my A license in LA. Um, back in the back in like 2005 2006 and then I also went back to England to do my UA for B so I did my UA for B at Liverpool at their academy which is why I ended up getting a job at Liverpool that's something that you know I went on a journey of, of working at Liverpool for a few years um, so I got my UA for B and then I didn't really do anything from a coaching I, I kept doing my updates like the audits for the A license and then in 2013 I went on the, um, was it 13? Yeah, I went on the UEFA A license at St. George's in England. And it was, a you know, 18 months, two years. I ended up passing that course in 2015. Um, so I got my UEFA A and I just need to continue to stay up on the continued professional development credits that you need for that one. So I've got my UEFA A and my USSFA. Yeah. I did not know you coached
0: at Liverpool.
1: I did. How long did.
0: did you coach there for?
1: Um, on Overall, part-time, about four years. Um, so when I, so at the stage of like me graduating college, um, I went through sort of two or three years of deciding whether I was going to live in America or England. So in America, I was coaching Bloomfield Force. I was also playing for the Detroit Neon in the summer mm. and then eventually played for the Rockers for a year. Um, and then during that time, what I would do is just to sort of make, get home and see my family and figure I went back sort of in November to England. And when I was back in England, um, I got offered a job at Bolton Wanderers, um, to coach their under 10. So I was coaching in the, the Bolton Wanderers who we were in the Premier League at the time. I was coaching their under 10 Academy. And during that time I was coaching at the Academy at Bolton, there was a, an advertisement, um, at, so I'm kind of jumping around the houses here, but I was also at the time, so I was working at, at Bolton, but I was also doing a master's at John Moores University in Liverpool for sports science. Okay. Um, so I was doing the master's and at John Moores, there was, there was an advertisement on the wall saying, take UA for B license at Liverpool Academy. So I was like, okay, great. So I signed up for it. I went to the academy at Liverpool. Uh, it was mainly all Liverpool staff and then just me from Bolton you know, Bolton Wanderers. And at the end of the, at the end of the course, uh, there was a guy called Frank McParland who ended up being the Academy director at Liverpool. He, he offered me a job. So long story short, I I went back to the U S carried on with playing and running Bloomfield. Then again, in November, went back to England, went straight to Liverpool and they sat with me at Liverpool and they said, listen, we want to give you a job. We want you to take the six, sevens and eights. We want you to oversee the training, but we also want you to design a program. Um, we want you to come up with a way that we can recruit locally in this area but also create goodwill in the community and and they said because here is our vision, our our objective the vision of Liverpool Academy, because it's quite new the vision of Liverpool Academy right now is it's a bit untouchable you can't go anywhere near, you're never going to get in there and we don't want that, we don't want that approach and the guy who was offering me this position uh, and asking me to help him with this project was a guy called Stuart Gelling I think Stuart's now um, a head coach of a national team in the, in the Middle East. Um, Anyway, Stuart said, Andy, I want you to put something together for us because you've been running a club. You know, maybe you can help us here. So I put together a program. All we did is call it mini soccer. And it was every Sunday morning, the local elementary schools would come in for, for a three week period. So just 15, 20 kids would come in on a Sunday morning for one hour and they just play a little five side and these kids were only like five and six years of age. We give them a t-shirt, we give the mums and dads a tour of the of the academy. Yeah. And then after three weeks, they'd get a certificate and then they go back to the friends and say, Oh, I was training at Liverpool Academy. So it started to, but what it did is it also allowed us to see all these kids. So I know that I believe, and I'd have to fact-check this, but I believe Martin Kelly came through the ranks there, which Martin Kelly ended up playing at Crystal Palace after Liverpool. Right. Um, and there are other players apparently that came through the system. So I know they did that for a long, long time, and I believe they still might even be doing that program. Um, I'm still waiting for some royalties on that one. I never got any. But um, <laughs> so, so, so I did. I, so I, I did that um, mini soccer. I did the six, sevens, and eights. It was great because I used to take the eight year olds to Melwood, and I would take. I would. They would meet Gerard Houllier and you know Robbie Fowler, Michael Owen. I mean, it was brilliant. And um, so, yeah, so that's where my connections with Liverpool. So basically what happened was Stuart just said to me, look, you know, every year when you come home in November to, to do your master's, just come work for Liverpool. So that's what I did. Um, and then I had a crossroads. I must've been about 28, 29, and they offered me a full-time job to, to stay at Liverpool. So it was a big decision and I, I turned it down because unfortunately it was, it, from a pay perspective, it w- would have been tough for me to, to, to do it because it was quite a low paid entry level position. Okay. Um, but it was Liverpool and I felt like maybe I could climb the ladder. Um, but over here, I, I, you know, my club, which is Bloomfield Force, I was now the director of coaching. It was building momentum and I felt like I was, you know, in, in the middle of an unfinished project. So yeah. I ended up turning it down in the end, which, you know, was a big decision, but it was, it was nice to get offered that. Yeah.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the UEFA and the USSF coaching yeah. qualifications. What's the difference between the two? Oof.
1: It, you know what? Um, I wouldn't say an awful lot of difference really. Now, I, obviously it's, it's not an apple to an apple because I did the UEFA A license in 13 and 14 and then got tested for it in 15. But I, I did the USSF A license in 2006, and then again in 2010 with the audit. Um, But the structure was very, very similar. I think the content changed because of the game evolves. I think the UA for A for me was um, almost like they accepted that everyone on the course was of a certain level of education in the game. And accomplishments in the game so that the so the actual content of the course was really fine detail you know it was really the little so we we even have had this big debate about you know as a centre-back you know if I'm the left-sided centre-back and the ball is on you know if I'm the left-sided centre-back the ball is in front of me on the opponent's right side coming at us what side do I stand when if I'm marking the number nine do I stand in the channel side or do I stand, you know, on the inside, you know, leading them to the channel? And there was all these like fine detail discussions that I thought were fascinating. You know, um, even that moment right there, there was a big argument between like the A licensed assessor and the, and one of, the, one, of the, uh, one of the lads on the course that was a high level coach from New Zealand. And they were debating like what side, what shoulder of the, of the center forward do you stand on? You know, do you do you stand on the inside and show them to the channel or do you stand on the, the channel side and there's a chance that he could spin you and go centrally? Well, they ended up showing us a lot of clips that, that showed us that the top level, I remember John Terry, they would talk about John Terry all the time, the top level centre-backs will stand channel side. They don't want to get beat into the channel. Do you understand what I mean? Like if a ball goes over the fullback, they don't want to get beaten to that channel. So it made sense. But it was like, you know, and whether people will be listening to this and think, well, that's not fine detail. I, I think that was just, to me at the time, that was fine detail stuff, and I enjoyed that. Um, but the 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 intensity of the program was very, very different. Like it was, um, you know, my first year in on the UA4A was a 13-day residential, and it was literally – I mean, I had to double check the schedule because I'm like, this we can't be doing this 14 hours a day. It's not possible, but we were. <laughs> and and what happened was you would do like, we we did like a, a, almost a week of education and then like six days of assessment. And we had to do two training sessions, both of them filmed, both of them with mics on, both of them with hundreds, well, not hundreds of people, but a lot of people watching. And it was very, mm-hmm. very, very intimidating. And it brought me way out of my comfort zone, more so than the A license did. Um, and that's not a knock on the a license because that was back in 2006. Um, so, so no, it was – it was. I remember saying to myself, do I really need the Uf- UA for A? No, not if I'm living in America. I don't really need it. But am I better if I go on that course and fail it than not go on it? So I, I decided to bite the bullet and go on it and come way out of my comfort zone. And it was one of the best things I've ever done to be honest with you
0: yeah how important is it for for young coaches to take their coaching qualifications seriously
1: yeah it's you know uh, are there a lot of good coaches out there that don't have the licenses yes there are many of them and for the reasons i just said a minute ago i will i will stand by most people don't like coming out of the comfort zone like that they don't like it you know they don't like living in a dormitory with don't get me wrong the the accommodations were great but they don't like living and breathing 24 7 getting up and being running a coaching session or a presentation in front of people that you don't know that's all stuff that really gets you out of your comfort zone but that is the biggest the, the the moment of growth for any coach is right there in that comfort zone when you come out of it so do i think coaches can make a career in the game and never take a license and be good yes um But do I feel like you will improve as a coach if you don't put yourself in that position of of an open-minded, vulnerable um, environment? I I think if you don't do that, I think you're limiting your growth. So I do think it's very, very important to get on the licenses, to, to just come out of your comfort zone. You might come away from these licenses thinking, and a lot of people say this, I didn't really learn all that much. You learned a lot. You learned a lot about yourself, in my opinion.
0: Yes, you are currently uh, a president and an owner of International Liverpool Academy in Michigan. Yes. How did that move come about? Is it because of your connections with Liverpool?
1: Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, So over the last 10 years, since 2010, I've been in the college game. So I, I was running the Bloomfield Force in 2010 um, obviously, you know, the Bloomfield Force became Liverpool Football Club International Academy Michigan. So I was running the Bloomfield Force in 2010. I got offered a position at the University of Michigan as the assistant coach with Steve Burns.
0: Oh, and he pause you right there. What yeah. was it like to work with Mr. Steve Burns?
1: Oh, the man is a legend. The man is a legend. <laughs> I loved working with Burnsy. And um, unfortunately, the timing wasn't great. And, you know, I know that, because we only, you know, myself and Craig Weibel, Craig Weibel, who's done very well in the game, played in the MLS for twelve years, was the technical director for Rail Salt Lake. We were we were both the assistant coaches yeah. after after Paul Snape moved to Butler and Chris Grassy moved to uh, West Virginia, uh, Charleston. So we were coach, we we're assistant coaches there for about you know eighteen months, and unfortunately, um, you know, Steve lost his job and. Um, you know, but I loved working with him and he, he gave myself and, and wives a lot of um, responsibility. And he's just super respectful, just, a, but just more than anything, for, you know, not only a very, very good coach, an incredibly intelligent man, like one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, but just a really good human being, just a good person. And he was great with the players. And, um, you know, I loved my time there and I wish I wish it was longer. And it didn't end up happening, you know, it didn't end up working out for us. But um yeah, so I love working with Bernsey. So I so I I was at I was at Michigan and then and then I went to Oakland, you know, somewhat part-time for a couple of years after the after Michigan fell through. And at this at the same time I was still running the club. And in 2016, if you recall or 15, 16, um Jurgen Klinsman came out with this new. Uh, sort of revelation that they're going to change the the, the the youth sockets of birth year rather than U12, U13, U14. So Kevin Garner, my director of coaching, who does a wonderful job with, with, with Liverpool, came to me with Danny Price, who's our director of operations, and it does a great job for me. And they came to me and said, look, you know, we're a little bit concerned when, when these age groups become birth year. You're going to have a lot of teams breaking up and, you know, we, I feel like we need to do something. We need to like become something different than what we are right now. So yeah. we had a really good internal review. We, we decided to set out a business plan and the business plan was in five, within five years, we, we will, we are going to try to get the best facilities that we could possibly get, which we did with ultimate soccer arenas. We were going to try to get the best coaches. So we went out and recruited a lot of a license, B license coaches, and we, we wanted to get the best brand or be the best brand, whether that was for us to reinvent the force or whether that was to partner with someone else. Mm. So um, I did some research and, and came across Liverpool International Academy. I reached out to a friend of mine, a guy called Nick Marshall, who used to run Oakland University soccer camps years ago. Or not run them, but he used to come over and coach from England. And he was the at the time, he was the academy director at Nottingham Forest. Well, Liverpool hired Nick Marshall about five, six years ago to become the head of football. So I reached out to him and said, hey, congrats. You know, just out of curiosity, you know, would Liverpool have any interest in getting involved in my club? Like if my club became Liverpool, would that be something that you would be interested in? And he said, I can't answer that question, but I'm going to pass you on to Dan White, who's in charge of that department. So I contacted Dan White and one thing led to another and we were... were uh, we became a Liverpool academy here in, in Michigan, so I mean, it took a long time to get that deal over the line, but it was it was revolution revolutionary for us.
0: Yeah. Now, does the Liverpool in the US run the same activities as the Liverpool in England? One hundred
1: percent. Yeah. So that's that was the glory of it. Boys, you know as well as me, there's been a lot of um, European or South American clubs that have come over, and they've they've taken over a youth club. And they put a patch on the sleeve and they've said, yeah, you're now, you know, whoever, you know, AC Milan or whatever you are. And it's like, oh, great, we're AC Milan. Well, okay, there's a lot more that goes into it than that. So what? one of the reasons why I felt like Liverpool was right for us outside of me being a fan and believing in the values of Liverpool, um, the curriculum was something. And I know curriculum gets used a lot. Everyone talks about, oh, we've got a curriculum. Uh, okay, I don't know if people really do have a curriculum. You know what I mean? Like I could have said... I, I had a curriculum with the force, but really what's the validity of, of a curriculum made by Andy Wagstaff? Like, it's OK, it's got some credit, but it's not, it's not worldwide credit. But then all of a sudden Liverpool comes to you and they say, we are going to give you the blueprint that brought Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler, Jamie Carragher. We've got the blueprint of how those players developed here at Liverpool Football Club in England, designed by Steve Highway, one of the, the best coaches I've ever seen. Um, improved and developed on by Alex Inglethorpe and Nick Marshall, who are now in charge of the academy. We're going to give you that. We're going to give you access to that, and you can now implement that curriculum with your players in in America. And I, I couldn't, you know, I, it felt like you know Christmas Day, and I was like, well, we've got to do this. So yeah, we the methodology and the curriculum that we use at Liverpool International Academy is is designed and brought from the Academy in England. And it, it's put into a database for all the staff. And we don't go in and just get to pick a session that's been run by Steve Iway or Alex Inglethorpe, but we go in and we get the portions of the sessions that have been put in there by, you know, the International Academy in England. And then we go in and we can pick and choose parts of that session, or we can design our own. But it ultimately falls into a five week cycle that we must follow. Now, we're not robots, we don't have to follow it like to a T. For example, if I've got a under 13 girls game, that have got a state cup game this weekend, I can deviate from that curriculum a little bit to get my, my girls prepared for that game, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, but for the most part, this, the, the curriculum is a five week cycle, we follow the five week cycle. And it's really um, a coaching methodology to, to prevent coaching to put out fires and what I mean by that is, you know, it, it, most coaches, and I used to do this as well, you would coach a team, you'd win or lose a game, and then you'd say, okay, what do I need to work on this next week to be prepared for the next game? So it's kind of like, we weren't very good at finishing, so let's put out that fire. We weren't very good at defending, so let's put out that fire. You know, instead of just working through five, five key areas or phases of the game that you will always need to work on. So that's why, that's why we feel strongly about the the curriculum here at Liverpool.
0: Yeah. uh, How did you get the job to coach Flint City Bucks?
1: So I used to coach. So back in one of the reasons why I got the job at Michigan was because Steve Burns is very close with Dan Duggan, who who owned the Michigan, who who was the former owner of Michigan Bucks, obviously tight with Gary Parsons. And Gary was the head coach uh, of the Bucks in 2010. So, Gary asked me to be his assistant. So I was the assistant for the, for the Michigan books back in 2010. And then in 2011, I got offered the the Michigan job. So I I left the box job because I couldn't do both. And so that's where my sort of relationship started with the books. I think it was 2013. Demir, Demir came in after me, Demir Mavtari is one of my closest friends and a brilliant coach. Demir got offered the job after, after I left to, to take the Michigan job. He came in as the assistant with Gary, did a brilliant job as the assistant, eventually became the head. So then I went back and helped Demir in 2013. And then I helped him again in 2019 when we won the national championship. So the deal coming in in 2019 was Demir was going to be the head coach and I was going to be the associate head coach, knowing that that was his last year. And then I would take over in 2020. And that's, so that was the plan. So I took over in 2020 And obviously due to COVID, all we could do with some was some exhibition games. So yeah,
0: listening to you, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. How do you balance (laughs) running the club, uh, also working with the Flint City Bucks?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you know, like I I I was doing college as well, right? So I was the I was the associate head coach at Oakland University up until last up until January of 2019. And I, I just unfortunately i had to just step away from that position um out of respect for eric pog and being able to give eric you know everything i could give the program i, I just couldn't do it not with the, the balance of trying to do everything else and keep in mind i've got a, a three-year-old a six-year-old and a, and a lovely wife so um yeah it was um it's been a challenge it's I, i'm fortunate to be surrounded by some very very good people that help me um that work for me or just friends that help me and um so I'm, I'm in a good position from that regard, but it, it is challenging. I mean, trying to, trying to operate and run Liverpool, which, you know, we're now, we're, we're going to be a little bit over 1,700 kids and close to 70 coaches. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a monster of a task. And then trying to do the, the Flint City Bucks will be, will, be, uh, will be, my plate will be full, but I'm, you know, I'm capable of it and I'm excited about it.
0: Yeah, early on, I know you said you had ambitions of becoming a professional player. Do you mm-hmm. have ambitions of becoming a professional coach?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think that the when you you know when you have kids I think that it sort of doesn't doesn't change your ambitions but it kind of puts things in perspective. So um in 2019 when I when I was close to when I just before I left Oakland I got a fr- a phone call from a friend of mine that's at a League One professional club. Um, actually FC Tucson and his name is John Gallus, and he's still there as the head coach and John approached me and said hey you know I want I want to bring you in as the as the assistant coach to USL League One team which is a professional job a professional coaching job and I had to turn it down because you know when you when you get a little bit older and you have a wife and kids and a mortgage to pay it's uh it's not easy to just jump on a plane and fly to a, a, a state you know on the you know other side of the country so I had to turn it down so um, I think, yes, I would love to be a professional coach. That's been my ambition since I was, you know, realized I wasn't going to make it as a professional player, but it would only ever work if it, if it fit into my lifestyle. So, you know, if the Flint City Bucks ever became a pro franchise or, you know, there's other, there's other pro franchises that are out there that are local, then I would, you know, I would always love to, to coach at that level, provided I could keep my current, you know, lifestyle and not move my family.
0: Yeah. Last question for you. I know you're a busy man. Uh, No problem. Who are your best top three coaches in the state of Michigan? It can be a college coach, it can be a youth coach.
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, I mean, Gary's got to be there, right? I mean, Gary is is my mentor, and, um, you know, and and Gary's sort of team really with Steve Sargent and Morris Lupinek was with him uh, at Oakland um, at the time as well. And I just loved. the the staff that Gary always assembled. So, so Gary would be one. Um, I'd have to say Kevin Garner, uh, you know, Kevin's been with me from, he was about 20, 20 to 21, you know, he's in his mid to late thirties now. So he's been with me quite a number of years and um, I just, I like his vision of the game. I think he's very, very good with, with players. Um, So I, I respect him highly as a coach. Um, he's good with people, and then I'd say Demir. You know, Demir Muftar is one of my closest friends, so maybe I'm biased a little bit with that. But I, I, I think he's, you know, the proof is in the pudding with Demir. Like he's, he's got a, he's got a charismatic um, nature about him that, that, that just in, makes the players want to run through brick walls for him. And um, so he's very intelligent, and his outlook on the game is very, uh, very good but he's just really good with people and he gets the best out of everyone that works for him. So, um, you know, sorry to anyone I left off. And there's a lot of other good coaches, really good coaches. Um, but those three. Yeah.
0: Andy, thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it.
1: No problem. Thanks, boys. I yeah, appreciate you having me.
0: All right, have a good one. See you, bud. Night. you for listening to telling our football stories and thanks to Andy for sharing his story with us have a great day